This is Tim Reister, co-author of The Expansion Sale, four must-win conversations to keep and grow your customers, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Speaking of LinkedIn, this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn, where business gets done. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash Marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. I'll mention more about that in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show, shall we? Today, we welcome Tim Reister to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Eric Peterson, The Expansion Sale, Four Must-Win Conversations to Keep and Grow Your Customers, published by McGraw-Hill. Tim Reister, Chief Strategy and Research Officer at Corporate Visions, has dedicated his career to improving the conversations companies have with prospects and customers. He's previously co-written three books on the subject, Customer Message Management, Increasing Marketing's Impact on Selling, Conversations that Win the Complex Sale, Using Power Messaging to Create More Opportunities, Differentiate Your Solutions, and Close More Deals, and the three value conversations, how to create, elevate, and capture customer value at every stage of the long lead sale. And all of those are based on actual decision-making science research that Corporate Visions has done. Tim is a highly sought-after researcher, author, speaker, and consultant in the areas of creating and delivering winning customer conversations. And interesting fact, he has performed for years in vocal quartets and community musical theater. Tim, congratulations on the expansion sale and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, Douglas, thanks. I also am clearly the inventor of the longest book titles known to humankind, but it's good to be here. Thank you. Well, you do have some competition there. Uh, there, there are some <laughs> with very, very long uh, book titles. And so this is your, if, this, if I'm not mistaken, this is your third book with Eric Peterson. Is that correct? It is. Yes, Eric Peterson and McGraw-Hill. We've partnered on three now. I hope I don't know if there's anything left, um, but we have squeezed three out. Yeah. And he is your boss, right? Yeah. it's uh, He's the CEO of the company. I'm the chief strategy officer. Good job title that has very much responsibility, and I took the one as ambiguous as possible. <laughs> Excellent. Well played, good sir. <laughs> well, as far as your public speaking abilities, I can vouch for how good they are. I met you a few years ago at a Content for Engineers media event in Chicago, and you were the last speaker of the day, and by far the best speaker. And I remember going up to you after you left the stage and telling you that you were the best speaker. And I can say that because I was one of the other speakers. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And thank you for uh, being the warming act for me that day. Just kidding. But the the last the presentation of the day is not an enviable spot. So you do find yourself having to bring an extra level of oomph uh, at that moment, so that's what you might have witnessed. Oh, it was great, and well, maybe I was, uh, maybe I was, you know, awake because it was really the only thing that was keeping us from the cocktail hour, as I recall. And that's, you know, that's important. Now, I spoke right after lunch, and I always want to talk right after lunch when everyone's full. And I'm sure the organizers had me speak because they knew that I probably wouldn't wake anyone up, and they wanted them to continue to, you know, 
relax after after their lunch. So uh, I've been following you uh, well before that, but but even more closely afterwards. I knew about the book coming out, and I was uh, messaging you. And then along came Roland Dewitt, who lived in the Netherlands for Salesforce, loyal listener, a friend of the podcast, and he messaged you and me and said, "Hey, you two, come on, you got to get with it." <laughs> Get on the show, yeah. and I really appreciate him doing that. That's not the first time he's uh, he's done that. So it's really funny how it takes like a listener in another part of the world to get the two of us uh, together. So let me just read an excerpt from uh, the beginning of the book and ask you to take it from there. As a native Midwesterner, one of our authors, Tim, grew up with an unhealthy phobia of tornadoes. Thankfully, his town had the foresight to install a siren warning system that would alert the populace, all 600 souls, to a looming threat should the occasion arise. The town tested the siren every day at noon, sounding a minute-long, ear-shattering blast, rain or shine. Yet somehow, the townspeople managed to ignore the piercing wail and go about their business, a few fondly referring to it as the noon whistle. Then, one memorable day, the skies darkened. The clouds began to rumble. And the siren went off at 3 p.m. That was it. The real deal. And 13 panicked teenagers who had been playing ball in the park sprang into action. Instead of ignoring the siren, the kids jumped on their bikes and pedaled as fast as they could to get home to the safety of their basements. More than a few crying for their mommies, according to a reliable eyewitness. Thankfully, no tornado touched down in that little town afternoon, and none have officially touched down in its entire 200-year history. But in that frantic moment, A lesson in marketing, sales, and customer service was born. Tim Reister, what was that lesson? (laughs) Context matters, right? There's, uh, I've now grown up to realize that there's fancy pants words to describe what happened that day uh, and our reaction to it, right? And the editors took out the nearly peed our pants uh, reference. So I just want to share that. Oh, so that's a marketing book podcast bonus just for the listeners. Yes, just for you. That's, that's the <laughs> deep cuts part of this podcast. <laughs> I, um, what I realized was it was the same whistle And it went off at the same decibel level as it would on a clear day at noon and people ignored it. But on a cloudy day at an off hour, we all responded to it. And what that says is that it's really the context effect is a science uh, phenomenon that says that the impact of a stimulus is, is driven by the situation you're in. So that siren meant nothing to us on a clear day, but it meant everything to us on a cloudy day. And so different contexts create different reactions. And in bringing that back to marketing, what we found is that a different context, in this case, are you targeting a prospect who doesn't know you and does business with your competitor, or are you targeting your existing customer who does know you and you are the incumbent? And and do you take a distinct approach because they are in different contexts? And so that's why we brought that story into the beginning of the book, because the entire book revelation that we all may have been taking one size fits all approaches. And in reality, we have to distinguish our marketing and selling approaches based on the situation that the audience we're targeting is in. And one of the many things that the book makes clear is that these are two very different animals with <laughs> the message. And yet so many companies want to have the same message, whether they're a prospect or, or a customer. And there's a few other things, though, that kind of puzzle me. You write that 70 to 80% of your revenue and growth opportunities come from your existing customers. Yet most companies take the same one-size-fits-all approach. They don't distinguish between uh, acquisition and expansion messaging. But from my perspective, it seems like most companies also put more money and throw weight behind the acquisition message versus the expansion message. And it seems like that's a misplaced priority as well. So a lot of people... I think have hoped and just to sort of assume that you would provide a good customer experience and your products and services would work as advertised and everybody would just stick with you and do more with you. And I think the, the revolution for uh, companies that are now moving into more of a subscription license recurring revenue model was this sudden realization that your stuff isn't like installed and not as, as 
intractable as it used to be. People have a decision they make every year, every month, every two years, whatever it is. And you got to keep re-winning the business. And they started to think maybe we need to, that customer success is not a given, that customer success is still customer selling. And you can't let the back door be as wide open as the front door. You can acquire all these customers, but if they're leaving on the back end, that's that's a zero sum game and uh, no no movement. So you got to protect your business and grow your business more purposefully. Uh, and so marketing is figuring out you need a second funnel for customer expansion, and it needs to be addressed differently because of the things we say in the book. And it seems like that is. A somewhat easier sale, faster revenue, and like I already mentioned, that's where more of the growth is. Yeah, it's it is harder to acquire a new logo, no doubt, but it's no guarantee that the the upsell is is. Uh, so we deal with upsells and cross sells where you have a an installed footprint, and everybody calls it land and expand, right? And there's just no guarantee that the expand part comes. And so you have to be more deliberate, more purposeful, because if you just look at your number each year and the biggest companies in the world have told us this and admitted this is, yeah, the majority of my number this year is going to come from keeping and growing my existing customers, selling them the next thing in our portfolio. And it just needs to be more deliberate than it has been. And the work in the book is, is that we found, we found the framework, the approach, the messaging nuance that's different uh, when you are the incumbent versus when you're trying to defeat the incumbent. And I think some people would kind of have this moment where they're like, well, no kidding. And I'm like, yeah, but the majority of you use the exact same message when you launch a new product. And so we can all agree it might be different, but if you're not being different, does it really count? So that's been the aha for everybody. And there's a like so many of the other books, there's so much research behind it. But I just wanted to read one more quote from the book, and then I want to ask you about the research that preceded this particular book. There are several things you must do after winning a new customer that are vital to the customer's experience and satisfaction, including onboarding, change management, adoption, and utilization, not to mention ensuring your customer achieves the results you promised. While these are important, this book doesn't focus on these day-to-day customer success activities. Instead, it focuses entirely on the four must-win moments in every customer relationship, renewals, price increases, upsells, and apologies. These are the acute scenarios in which you rally your organization's marketing, sales, and customer success resources to keep and grow your customers. They're also the tense situations that register highest on the Richter scale, (laughs) where much of you and your company's success hangs in the balance. It's in these moments you need tested, proven customer conversations, message, frameworks, and skills rooted in decision-making science and the invisible forces that shape how people frame value and make choices. And that's what you'll get in this book, specific, practical, actionable approaches to create and deliver your message for maximum impact in these make or break moments. So your books remind me of those types of books like um, Challenger Sale, Challenger Customer, in that there is so much research that goes into it. And it's you're, you're not, you all, not a lot of theory here. You're, <laughs> you're backing it all up. <laughs> Talk about the, uh, the research that preceded this particular book. And I, I'm, I'm supposing that you've also continued to draw on previous research. For sure. So first of all, we should have had you read the audio version. It sounds great when you do it. I'm <laughs> listening to it going, that book is lovely. Well, I really <laughs> liked the book, as a matter of fact. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, the research. So this is the thing about, uh, I I think in many industries where we're overwhelmed with data, people are trying to make sense of the data and people say we're data rich, but theory poor. So they're trying to make sense of it. I feel like in marketing and sales, we've been theory rich and data poor, like people's opinions and like, oh, this is a best practice says who and where Uh, that's it's urban myth and unexamined folklore, I like to say. So what we do is we take a look at the existing behavioral sciences of how humans make decisions. But what's interesting about academic science and the literature is most of those tests were done on 
uh, undergraduates, gamblers, and convicts. And and those are now some of your B two B customers might be those things, but I thought you'd include marketers there. But go ahead. (laughs) And so they do it on a captive audience that requires very little incentive to be part of studies. We then do studies in simulation environments, so we do behavioral science, behavioral outcome based simulations and stuff. We also have a lab, a brain lab. Actually, own a brain lab in Sausalito, California, where we put people in EEG caps, ECG electrodes, galvanic skin. response, eye tracking, facial recognition to see how people react to these things. And we have a small field lab where we have 10 callers in an inside selling situation where we then put these messages and frameworks into A-B tests in real world calling environments. So we do a lot of studying, but we do it in B2B decision-making environment so that we build on the existing science, things like the context effect I mentioned earlier. That's existing science anchoring, contrast, um, all ki- sunk costs. There are all kinds of interesting pieces of science out there that people go, I wonder if that's true and relevant in B2B. So that's the science and those are the labs we use. And, and that's what informs this book. So it's original exclusive research that we did in a B2B setting in those four acute moments that you mentioned. We like to call them the acute moment because there's just a lot of things you got to do to just provide good support to make sure your customer's up and running and happy. But all of a sudden there's a spike and like, think of it like an EKG, right? All of a sudden, bam, it shoots up and now you gotta, you all gotta do something. And it's a, it's a commercial moment where something's on the line, revenue's on the line. And those are the moments that we took aim at and are producing, I hope, useful frameworks so that you can be more purposeful in those moments. Mm. Okay. Now I want to jump to the very end of the book. And I want to talk about status quo bias, which is very important. But one of something you mentioned at the end, and that was, I'd like you to explain this Copernican shift you describe that should be a bigger part of B2B marketing and sales, which is going from best practices more to the status quo bias. And I realize you may need to explain what status quo bias is there, but I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So much of the research is done to say, oh, here's what sellers do, or here's what marketers do. And this is what appears to work best. And it's always like very uh, self-centric. I'm a marketer and I want to know what marketers do, or I'm a seller and I want to know what sellers do. We All of our studies are, what does a buyer, what does a customer do? And not what do they think they do, not even what do they say they do. We actually put them in simulations and real experiences where we watch what they do do. I just said that on your podcast. <laughs> and, um, and and that's the difference. And so the, the, the primary piece of science that we have landed on that drives this acquisition versus expansion thing is status quo bias. Status quo bias is this idea that people are reluctant to make a change if they don't feel, they don't feel enough pain with what they're currently doing. And so when you are selling something new to a prospect who is working with someone else, you have to disrupt, you have to defeat, you otherwise have to unhinge or unhook them from status quo bias. And that's the difference. When you are the existing installed incumbent, you are their status quo bias. And this idea of coming in with something aggressively challenging their current status quo, we discuss causes them to rethink you and rethink everything and bring more competitors to the table because they're like, gee, if I've got to change this much, and even my incumbent is saying, yeah, yeah, new, 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 change, change, change. I, I might as well examine all my options because who's to say I'm working with the best partner. And so what we found is when you disrupt the status quo bias, when you are the status quo bias, uh, it can backfire. And that the reality is, is that you want to take advantage of your incumbency, the incumbent advantage, and lean into and reinforce their status quo bias when you are the status quo bias. Now, in the book, we detail the four causes of status quo bias, which means you should know for these four reasons why people don't change their mind. And what you want to do when you disrupt status quo bias is you want to deliberately defeat those four causes. But when you are the status quo bias, you want to just as deliberately reinforce those four causes of status quo bias. And that to me is the breakthrough is it's not an abstract idea, status quo bias. It's very specific. Four reasons you either defeat or four things you must reinforce in order to win in those two circumstances. And can you walk us through those four? 
Sure. So I the deal with reason- them all the time in any sales situation. <laughs> well, you know what? I always joke that these are good not only for selling situations and customer conversations, but you know, with your spouse or significant other or your children. These are principles that were identified inside of change management, not selling. And I think that's what makes this really interesting is when you think of yourself as a change agent. Which I quoted earlier. Yes, exactly. So the four causes. The first is preference stability. Human beings don't like uncertainty. Human beings develop preferences. Once they've made a decision, they have a preference and they prefer to keep that preference stable. In any information they get to the contrary, they try to very quickly assimilate and explain back to you why it's not that different. And so if somebody says, you know, that's interesting, but it sounds a lot like what I'm already doing or a lot like what everybody else is saying, the word like is your enemy. It's, it's, it's your friend on Facebook. I get it. <laughs> but in selling, the word like is like the death knell because they just reaffirmed or reestablished their preference stability for their current preference. You have to purposefully destabilize a current preference. You must create uncertainty because persuasion is not possible without uncertainty. So preference stability, number one, you must destabilize that preference. Number two, the perceived cost of change. People believe that their status quo is free and that all the cost burdens on the change and their status quo isn't free, but they're like, oh, if I change now, I've got to get back the buying committee and I've got to convince a bunch of people, drive consensus. I might have to find new monies and new budget to bring this in. Oh, then I'm going to have to onboard, do some systems integration, do some change management. And they're like, you know what? Change is going to cost me time, stomach lining, and money. And I might as well, it's not perfect what I'm doing, but I'm not dead yet. That thing, <laughs> that thing that could kill me. They look at, I, they look at your solution, not as a solution, but a change management project. So number two is the perceived cost of change. And that's why my biggest competitor is no decision. Right. They have to believe there's a loss or a cost associated with staying the same, because if they don't think their current situation is uncertain or costly, you ain't getting nowhere. Even the next two causes of status quo bias don't matter. The reason you get no decision is they were they did not believe there was enough uncertainty or loss associated with staying the same. It's simply, yeah, it's not perfect, but I'm not dead yet. And that thing you're proposing to me, that effort, that could kill me. And that's what you're up against. So those are two, um, preference stability and perceived cost of change. The third is selection difficulty. That simply says that everybody's so overwhelmed with so much information. And the more information you pile on, the more you look exactly like what they're doing in everybody else. And people will not take the risk of change to get more or less the same. And so here's where the science of contrast comes in. You have to show clear contrast between their current state and their future state because the perception of value does not live in your benefit statement or value proposition. The perception of value lives in the contrast and having enough contrast between the current state and the future state to make and take the risk of change. Again, the bumper sticker there is people will not change to get more or less the same and you must show clear contrast. So, um, Selection difficulty is the third thing you have to overcome. And then the fourth is anticipated regret and blame. As individual consumers, if we do or don't buy something, we have we can experience regret. In B2B, we not only have regret, we have blame. That means other people are pointing their fingers. So it's really high hurdle that someone has to get over, which is again, I'm not dead yet, but if we make this change, that could kill us. And oh, who's gonna who's gonna be the target of the wrath? Me. And so anticipated regret and blame you have to overcome with really excellent before and after proof stories. So somebody one identifies with the problem, believes they've got the same problem, two, sees the after and knows somebody else has made this journey safely. So those are the four causes of status quo bias, preference stability, perceived cost of change, selection difficulty, and anticipated regret and blame. And your change story must address all four, take aim at them and defeat them. But your renewal and upsell and price increase discussions with existing customers must reinforce those biases to create a firewall against a competition. Let's pretend for a moment that you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team is happy. Everything is going according to plan, except for that one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer 
is LinkedIn. Because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to do business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn, and that's just one of the many reasons why more than 78% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform at helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn has tools for branding and lead generation. Not only can you target and reach a professional audience down to their job title, company name, and location, but you can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. And to make this ridiculously easy to try, LinkedIn is giving marketing book podcast listeners a $100 advertising credit toward their first LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. And the anticipated regret and blame reminds me that B2B purchases, one could argue, are actually more emotional than a consumer purchase. In other words, you buy the wrong roofing job or car, that's kind of on you, but you buy the wrong thing for your company and it could affect the life of your company, but it could also affect your your career long-term. And that's why I was so delighted to see a sidebar in the book about the myth of the emotionless executive. <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell you how many people came to mind when I saw this. Let me just quote this and ask you to talk a little bit about the, the research that came out of that. Right? There's a widespread assumption that seasoned business executives are rational decision makers. They assess risks and weigh rewards with a keen calculating eye and make coldly logical choices based on hard numbers. They might use different criteria when weighing a personal decision or so the thinking goes. But when it comes to business, it's just the facts, ma'am. So you all explored this, and what did you find, Tim? Yeah, it's funny because business executives want you to think they're cool and calculating. And <laughs> I always joke that they, they want you to believe they're like uh, the, the tin woodsman in The Wizard of Oz. They have no heart. And, uh, but the truth couldn't be more opposite. In fact, they're still humans. And what we know and what we studied is going into the study, we know that human beings, there's a, a piece of science called loss aversion. And loss aversion is this idea that we are more willing to take a risk in order to avoid a loss than we are to get a gain. And so we took 400 executives or so and split them into two cohorts, unknowing to them. And we recruited um, VP or higher titles in B2B organizations, 50 million and greater and from different industries. And so these were done and they, they were individual experiments. They didn't know they were how big the experiment was or even who else was in it. They would go into an online setting and they were presented with a scenario. And the scenario basically said, you're working for an automobile manufacturer, you're an executive and you have a choice to make. You have a plan on the table from your CFO, which is your status quo. And the plan says, in this case to group one, you're gonna have to lose one out of, I'm sorry, you, you have to save, you, this plan will save one out of three plants and save 2,000 out of the 6,000 jobs. So it was presented as in a gain frame that the plan is going to save one out of three or um, and, and save 2,000 out of 6,000 jobs. The other group heard the current state as the plan says you're going to lose two out of three and lose 4,000 out of 6,000. And if everybody wrote that down, would you realize it's the same math, but we presented their decision as being either framed as your status quo is saving one out of three or 2000 out of 6,000 or losing two out of three and losing 4,000 out of 6,000. So the mindset was different. One was a loss frame versus a gain frame. Then we presented a risky solution. In both cases, the solution was risky and it was the same exact solution. And what it said was, there's a fancy pants vendor down the hall who has an interesting value proposition. They're telling us that they give us 33% odds that we're going to be able to keep all the plants open and keep all the jobs. But there's a 66% chance of losing all the plants and losing all the jobs. So you can see the risk. It's an outside vendor. And we said, here's the big deal, gang. When you're trying to sell to a company you're the risky bet, right? What they're doing today, their status quo, like the CFO's plan, that's the known. 
and you are coming in from the outside and you're always perceived at a, as a risk. So the question is, how do you improve the odds that they will, they will seek risk as opposed to avoid risk? Turned out in the first instance with the gain frame, 75%, 74% of those executives took the sure bet, took the thing that was on the table. And only 24% were willing to take the risk to try and save a little bit more, even though there was some downside to it. Mm-hmm. In the second instance, same math, but just flipped. The people who stuck with the status quo would now move from 74% down to 55%. The people willing to take the risk moved from 24% to 45%. I hope everybody stuck with me there. <laughs> the bottom line is Double. we increased, yes, we increased the persuadability by 70% just by reframing their current situation as a loss to be avoided, as opposed to them thinking of it as a a modest gain to be salvaged. And that proved to us that executives are just as emotional because it was the same math problem. And if it was just a math problem, or for my friends in Europe, math's problem, if it was the (laughs) same maths, they should have broke the same way, right, Douglas? They should have broke the same way. And instead, we saw a 70% increase in people willing to take the risky bet and that just proves you just really have to understand status quo bias and and how hard it is to defeat and that you need to you know put some science on your side. And when I read about that, I thought that Dale Carnegie was smiling down on corporate visions from heaven <laughs> because this quote came to mind from Dale Carnegie. When dealing with people, let us remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing with creatures of emotion. Creatures bristling with prejudices and motivated by pride and vanity. Oh, you know, yeah. it really upsets people when you put all this research behind these things. Well, right, and and prove it year after year because Dale, you know, hasn't been around for a few years, and we're still validating that same principle. I always like to say, you know, we do have a rational brain. We do have a rational brain, and it's the part of our brain that has the capacity for language. And what's funny is, so when you ask a customer, "What are you going to need to make a decision?" They will tell you, but they're unwittingly lying to you because they're telling you something rational and logical uh, because that's what they're going to do to justify a decision. Yes. But the emotional intuitive part of the brain is the one designed to make decisions to leave status quo someplace they thought was safe and find a new safe. So I, I, I found this, you'll like this quote. I saw somebody who said, you know, our rational brain likes to think it's a scientist, but it's really more like a radio talk show host. It does a lot of talking and explaining, but not a lot of doing. And <laughs> it's the emotional brain that does all the heavy lifting. Yeah, I've also heard that as uh, the, like the the rational part is really the PR department for the primal, the more emotional. Uh, yes, older right. Part of the we, brain. we want to convince ourselves how good our decision was and cons- convince others how smart we were. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of analogies. <laughs> like I, I have that motorcycle because it's uh, good on gas mileage versus the car. Yeah, that's well, it. This is, but this is why voice of the customer research can lead people astray because you're asking them to tell you what they think and how they think they make decisions and they go right to their rational brain. And then they, you start making messages and other things, other tools, and you're appealing to what they told you. And you've totally missed the part that actually does the work. Yes, absolutely. Now, let's flip the coin on the, on the status quo bias and talk about some of these things that you have to use if you're trying to uh, keep and, and grow your current customers. Uh, let's talk about the why stay message. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. What, what is... Uh, what are the things that are in a winning why stay message? You touched on it earlier about reversing mm-hmm. all the, the biases, but can you say a little right. bit more? Yeah. If everybody wants to think of documenting impact and documenting investment. So there's there's uh, two pieces of science here, anchoring for positive effect and sunk cost. And what you want your customer to see is what kind of impact, what kind of positive business result what kind of momentum or trajectory up and to the right have y'all generated together since you've started working together? And if you assume your customer has been documenting that, you, 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 uh, you're leaving your, your incumbent advantage to chance. So your incumbent advantage is something your competitors don't have, which is demonstrated business impact and results and documented investment and effort that everybody's made. So impact on results is pretty obvious. What kind of metrics did you move that are meaningful to your customer that they don't want to risk going backwards on. This creates this mindset of, wow, uh, things might not be perfect, but if I change right now, I could lose all this momentum. 
The idea of investment and effort in sunk cost is if I change now, I might have to redo all that. So letting them know, here's the investment that everybody's made. Here's the onboarding cost. Here's the systems integration cost. Here's the process change. Guess what? That's all behind us now. So a little trip down memory lane to remind them of the business, well, show them the business impact and results that they wanted to achieve and how much they've achieved since then. And remind them of the investment and effort that everybody's made is where you basically create the firewall. Because your competitor can come in and talk about all the cool new stuff to provoke the customer to think about some new things, but they don't have this, the impact and the investment to document. And what I like to then wrap that around is incumbent advantage. It's there that you create the momentum where people start to believe they have a better chance of continuing that progress if they keep going, like building on top of, as opposed to starting over. And so the best messages, in, in fact, all of our expansion messages, why stay renewals, why pay price increase, and why evolve upsells, all start. Do not pass go, do not collect $200 until you have documented the impact and the investment and 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 put a stake in the ground for your incumbent advantage. Right. And and documenting the impact is is very important. And I want to talk about that in a minute. The idea of talking to an incumbent about radical change is uh, a third rail. I got the impression from the book. You've really got to be careful about trying to get them to change even more dramatically once you're in the tent with them. And that's where you all talk about the why evolve conversation. So can you explain the the difference there and why, uh, like the difference between why evolve versus why you have to be very careful about the why change approach, which is more commonly used uh, when you're trying to acquire the business, right? Right. So you're trying to provoke a prospect to rethink everything when you're in the why change new customer acquisition, because you want them to rethink their status quo. Here you are the status quo. So you don't want to use some of those same methods that cause them to rethink their status quo. And that's what happens. So you want to reinforce. So documenting the results and impact and investment gets them to go, hmm, yeah, not sure I want to give that up or do that again. Uh, and then you showcase the next thing that you think they should do in the context of just that. This is sort of the next. What we're seeing in the market, this is what we always say, is you have now an advantaged position because you are now seeing inside their organization as well as working with other companies like them outside. And you have this unique vantage point that your competitors don't, which is this intersection of how are you doing because we're working with you and how does that compare to what others are doing? And what that does is it reveals what we call hard truths. So you take these emerging trends that you're seeing, not surprising, disruptive, provocative, didn't see that coming, sort of, (laughs) right? It's like, hey. That that would frighten them. That would make them not feel safe. Right. And they'd be like, thanks for nothing. Why didn't I see that coming? So you're like, hey, here are the evolving trends, the evolving issues. We've all seen them coming. But now we have a vantage point of being able to compare what we've noticed and encountered inside your organization with what we're seeing with companies like you. It's a very, it's like a catbird seat to um, turn their skepticism Whenever you try to launch provocation, there's sometimes you get skepticism. I like to say, convert their skepticism into voyeurism. The one thing they always want to know is what other people like them are doing, especially compared to how they're doing. And so the why evolve message is really rooted in your partnership and what you've accomplished, what you've observed and what you've done together, and then comparing it to others like them you're working with and now saying, here are the evolving pressures and here's how some others are dealing with them compared to you. And we call it now share the hard truths. And you've earned permission. It's in fact, they go, thank you. Can I have another? Because you are, you're doing them a service at that point. And uh, that's the difference between why change provocation, challenging and install base upselling, reinforcing and expanding is that moment right there. So Tim, I do appreciate the reference to uh, Kevin Bacon's line in Animal House. Uh, Thank you, sir. May I have another? But what I want to do now is ask you about something that was in the book, you talked about from the research, and I see marketers and salespeople and companies doing this all the time. In fact, when we met in Chicago, I was giving a talk and the title was Stop Talking About Your Products First, which given to a group of a couple hundred manufacturers, I thought I was going to get thrown off the stage. But you all talk about product is hero, and it's a really almost always a bad idea. 
explain what that is and 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 the harm that that causes to uh, people that are trying to sell more uh, to their customers. Yeah, it really shows up. It's always a struggle to make the product hero because really the customer's the hero when you're trying to sell a product. And so it's a bad move in acquisition or expansion, but worse in expansion, we believe. And and that is that um, when you launch a new product, the idea is you lead with all that's new and you talk about the new research and the new needs and the new features and new, 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 new sounds like disruptive, new sounds like a lot of change. And in existing customer dialogue, when you launch a new product, we see too many companies and marketers send the same message to their existing install base as they do to the prospects. And they don't realize the damage they're doing because you're, you're upsetting status quo bias you want to put your new product in the context of what they're doing today, what's going well and succeeding today, and how you're extending this opportunity to continue to meet those objectives and maybe meet some new objectives. So contextualizing your new product in terms of what this part of your installed base is doing. So we always talk about identify uh, which customers you're targeting with this new product, but open your story with what they're currently experiencing and how well that's going for them and what it's allowing them to accomplish. But here are some additional things that you're probably thinking about and others like you are talking a lot about, and we're going to help you address those. And it, it's really an evolution uh, expansion discussion that definitely linked to and reinforced what they were already doing. Any daylight between the new product and what they're doing makes it seem like it's a new deal and a new decision and they you don't leverage your incumbent advantage. So new product as hero is bad in general, but way worse with existing customers. <laughs> and we see it all the time. It's like, here's our new product launch and here's your story. And and people are are like using the same story with both audiences. And I'm not saying it's like wreaking havoc, but it's not having at least as positive an impact as it could. The risk even greater that since you've got something new here, they're like, you know, maybe we should look at your competitors if we're going to try something so new. Yeah. Or, or, so yeah. It is, it's a psychology moment here that we're losing on um, because it, it, we just disrupted ourselves. Yeah. So, Tim, you are married to Laura and you have four daughters. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and suppose that you're probably better than average at apologizing. <laughs> so what what should be to be marketers and salespeople know about apology science and the expansion sale? And I just have to say, when I read this, it brought to mind how much more loyal I am to a company when we've had a problem and they've demonstrated that they can fix it. I never want to leave after that. And now I understand why. Yeah, there's actually science. It's called the service recovery paradox. And the reason it's called a paradox is if you recover well from a service problem, you can ingratiate yourself in such a way that you get greater loyalty than if you never had a service problem. And frankly, people sort of forgot about you. And and, and if somebody performs when the chips are down, even if it's your problem, they it increases the confidence level moving forward versus like, we don't know how these people would function in a difficult circumstance. So it's literally out there. It's been in business to consumer, but um, just about two years ago, some literature came out in B2B that identified the service recovery paradox as being true for B2B. But in all of our research on apologies, so we looked at about 30 years of research, probably 36 peer-reviewed academic journals on apologies, and we didn't find anywhere like the precise order of a best apology. Like which, mm -hmm. what, what order should you share an apology to have maximum impact on the service recovery paradox? What we did find are five elements of good apologies. After looking at all these articles, we netted it out to like, these are five key ingredients of a good apology, but we don't know what order to share those in. So what we did is we created an experiment where we wrote in those five elements, the same copy, right? So we just took uh, the five elements and we wrote five uh, bits of copy and then we just reordered them in different orders. Now we, we took some liberties in saying these are probably the five potential winners because we had read enough now to know that some things would be losers. And so what we did in the test was definitely look for orders that we thought had a good shot at winning based on what we knew about the research that we'd reviewed. And what we came to find is 
five different test conditions, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in these tests. And there was actually one framework, one order that consistently outperformed all the others. And what that said was that the order of telling a story sometimes is, in fact, we believe is more important than the elements themselves. Yes. That, that um, in particular, your openings and your closings, which people are what they really remember, need to be right and they need to be the right one at the right time. So it was super uh, exciting to say without a shadow of a doubt, because every question we ask on every parameter and variable we measured, one framework of the same words, but in a specific order, one every time. And it was it was counterintuitive, to be honest, too. Then you even brought it back to anyone that's ever had a really awful experience at a restaurant. You, you explain that when the manager comes over, if they don't offer to comp your dinner or, or, or fix the problem right off the bat, any of these other four things they're going to say are just going to make you angrier. And I thought, yeah, I've been in a situation, situation like that where something's gone horribly wrong. They need to fix it, but they don't get to that point first. Fascinating. Yeah, well, everybody wants to think that the expression of regret and apology and sorry is first. It turns out, especially in what we were testing was the documentation that travels the halls of the customer, like the thing they reflect on later over time. And it turns out that the first thing you need to do is to demonstrate that you're going to restore or replace the perceived lost value, that whatever happened caused uh, a deficit. It's... it's uh, it's called justice theory for the those sciency wonks who want to go look at apology research, and you have to restore fairness and 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 kind of show that justice has been done. And so the reason you come up and say, "Hey, I've, I've talked, I've heard your complaint. We're going to comp your dinner. That is never going to happen again." This you explain the problem. So somewhere in the middle, you must explain the problem because they got to know you know what it was, so they believe that in the future it won't happen again. But yeah. you don't you don't start explaining what the problem was first. You restore their perception of uh, fairness and uh, justice by saying, "Hey, here's what we're going to do to restore not in these words, but your perception of lost value." And then we're going to do some explaining about what we discovered and what we're going to do to correct that problem in the future. And then you land the exit is, and here's our profuse apology and declaration of repentance, um, because that's a good, hot, emotional close. But it, it, the best thing to open with is they're not going to hear anything until they believe you've restored value. So, Tim, you write in the book quite a bit about documenting results, and we mentioned that earlier. And the, the for me, the linchpin of the results are the goals. And as I was reading the book, I was lamenting the fact that so many companies, at least the ones I run into, just don't seem to have any goals. <laughs> and to my delight, you then went on to acknowledge that that is a thing. And you even made some suggestions on what you should do to help customers uh, define their goals. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and also the the, the situation of establishing or agreeing to goals that the top stakeholders will find important. Because I've seen a lot of companies where, let's say like, you know, in the agency world, we're dealing with a marketing person, but we're very cognizant of the fact that we need to know what the owners of the company are looking for. And they're usually very, very different. In other words, they might be more interested in revenue growth versus uh, marketing activity. Yeah. So the, the challenge with any sort of documenting results is cooperation often with your customer. But if you can come armed with the kinds of metrics that you know you can impact and and they're more willing to give you certain data because they're like, yeah, those are things I'd like to measure. I think the challenge is in, in the expansion sale, we talk about the importance of documented business results and impact. And the first question we usually get is, where do those come from? I, I would <laughs> tell you that ideally, ideally, when you won this deal, you promised some things and that there'd be a nice handoff. I, eventually, they shouldn't even be a handoff, uh, that there'd be a, a, a transition of here are the things that we promised. Here's the reasons they signed on the dotted line. Here's even the business case that they signed up to. Now let's track these very things. Because often what happens is there is a business case. Somebody had a business case, but then you go into implementation mode and you start measuring adoption, utilization, installation, red, yellow, green service support calls. And you start looking at things that are at the implementation 
usage level of your solution. And you will no longer ever get an executive in one of your business reviews because they could care less about that stuff. They're like, oh, I delegated that several layers down. (laughs) And so there's this gap then when you want to have an executive business review and you want to renew the business and upsell them where you can't even get the executive in the room. And so in the book, we talk about something called the triple metric. It's a great chapter and it talks about project level goals, which the ones I just described are really simply project level goals. Mm -hmm. And then there's department level goals and then there's corporate level impacts. So here's what we're going to do in the project. And this is what that's going to do for the department or the business unit. These are the things basically that you agreed on in the business case. And now we're showing you that we're accomplishing those. But to make it even more impactful, we're going to roll those up to the things, the strategic initiatives and levers at the corporate level. And that's the triple metric, project, business unit department, and corporate. And we explain in the book in great detail what those different types are and give examples of what you might be looking for and what's meaningful to those audiences and some suggestions for how to pull that through from the business case into the ongoing monitoring of business results so that you can have a business review and the executives want to continue to show up. And then when you try to upsell them, you can tell a business impact story that has the kind of teeth that budget holders and deciders want to hear. Right. There's there's something in it for them. <laughs> rather, Absolutely. Yep. Rather than just for the people that they've delegated it to. So Tim, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? So- The assumption of the book was everybody's taking a one-size-fits-all approach to how they're reaching out to prospects and how they're reaching out to customers, that there is a different psychology. It's 180 degrees different. And as a result, your stories that you build for those two motions, acquisition and expansion, must be different and reflect that psychology and the skills with which you tell those stories. When you're, when you're a disruptor and defeater, it's different than being a reinforcer and expander. So your marketing stories and your selling skills need to be situational for the psychology of the acquisition moment versus the expansion moment. Mm. I think, if I could predict here, Tim, there's going to be a lot of foreheads slapped after people read the book because <laughs> they're all going to be thinking, oh my gosh. We've been doing the exact opposite. (laughs) Don't! (laughs) Better stop doing that in terms of talking to everybody like it's a a new acquisition. So what is one thing a listener could do today? Just one thing to put in action one of the many ideas from your book. So I believe that the, the, the context effect, as I mentioned earlier, that if you can acknowledge because I'll be honest, sometimes everybody's like, I can't start until I know exactly what results we had for that specific client. Mm -hmm. If you're a marketer and you're listening to this and you're about to put a campaign out for a new product launch, I would ask that you would put a story together that reflects the the, all the sizzling newness of a why change story for your prospects. But for your existing customers, this new product, think about who you're selling this to primarily. What do they have installed? And describe for them the context and linkage back to a very smart decision they've made and the results they're undoubtedly already seeing and how this will take it to the next level. So even if you don't have client-specific data, you can generalize some impact and results that people who own this A product have and then connect the dots to why this B product We'll make that better and then some. And just creating a context for the existing customer to say, oh, that's me that you're talking about. And yes, I do have that. And now this makes a lot of sense as an extension or expansion, as opposed to I got the same disruptive campaign as everybody else. And even if I'm interested, I'm going to possibly treat this as a new decision. And and that's what you want to avoid. So context is queen or king. And I hope the listeners appreciated that nowhere in your answer did you say, hey, check out our new product. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I, I hope that just like becomes a swear jar now. And if everybody, <laughs> right. you, can, you can penalize people who uh, lead with that. Yes. So Tim, what books have most inspired your work and career? So I read a lot uh, from the 
the behavioral economics world and social psychology world. So Daniel Kahneman, he won a Nobel uh, Prize in economics, even though he was a social psychologist for something called prospect theory. And he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, which really speaks to this system one emotional intuitive decision making relative to system two rational and logical. Uh, and, and that's kind of a a foundational book for anybody who's going to bring this kind of science into your work. And some of you, I'm sure are like, yep, got it on my shelf. Love it. Um, Dan Ariely, uh, he wrote something called predictably irrational. Mm-hmm. And in that is that, that our, we are irrational deci- decision makers, but we do it with such frequency and consistency that you can actually predict it. <laughs> and uh, he did a nice job of expressing and exploring all kinds of studies that weren't B2B, but as we've now been able to show, humans are still in B2B and they're still really effective. So those were two seminal books for me. Uh, there's so many. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like some Cialdini. He wrote Persuasion, uh, Persuasion uh, Influence, which is all about persuasion. And he recently wrote a book called Persuasion, uh-huh. How Do You Influence Somebody Before? Um, it's kind of interesting and intriguing. Uh, so he's a, he's a good author in this space. Jonah Berger, uh, he's done some things that are, he's done Contagious and some other books that are are really good in this space. So just kind of that invite, you start looking at some of these books and then you start getting recommended some that are like this. Uh, and, uh, but those are a few, I would start those with are- thinking fast and thinking slow because that the, you almost have no street cred if you don't have that on your bookshelf and you're trying <laughs> to do this kind of science. Yes. And you talked about almost all of those authors uh, in your book and uh, had the honor of uh, interviewing some of them. And that's really very important. Um, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to seeing or reading? Yeah, that's that's interesting. You'd ask that question. I, I, I have nothing in my queue right now. Uh, we are We are so focused on honestly executing in this particular area, because after the pandemic started, all of a sudden new business trailed off for everybody. And we frankly kind of, it looks like we might've had some sort of uh, foreknowledge <laughs> that existing customers were going to be all the rage. They already were, but they're more the rage. And uh, mm. we have into this and our big deal is trying to figure out what's the next piece of research that we're going to do in this area and and interestingly, one of the things we're trying to figure out exactly how to study is the impact of persona. Is it really that big a deal versus their installed scenario? Do your decision makers rally to a consensus more readily based on sharing an installed scenario and needs and objectives as opposed to individualized and tailored persona-based messaging? Our hypothesis is that to get a consensus-driven decision, you get lower outcomes by tailoring your message to the extreme for all the different personas. And what you really want to do is be guiding and galvanizing them to a shared situation. And not to bore everybody, but we always look for an existing piece of science to base this on. And there's something called fundamental attribution error. Mm -hmm. We tend to overestimate people's disposition when it comes to the decisions they make, and we underestimate the power of their situation. What that really says is situation is more powerful in driving a a decision than your disposition, or I like to say your persona. It's the installed scenario that you share with all the other deciders on your team that drives the consensus, not the individual persona-based messaging. So we believe that hypothetically, and we're now trying to construct an experiment that does that. And so stay tuned. Oh, if another book comes out of that, sign me up, sir. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll probably put out a webcast and an ebook before that book, so uh, we'll let you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I do subscribe to your newsletter. So, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable to your sites, to your LinkedIn profile, and uh, in hopes that listeners will connect with you and learn more about you. and And thank you for for joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Expansion Sale, for must-win conversations to keep and grow your customers. The authors are Eric Peterson and Tim Reister. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Douglas. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, LinkedIn, where business is done. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketingbook. That's linkedin.com slash marketingbook. Terms and conditions apply. And speaking of LinkedIn, since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, invite me to connect with you on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.